Hello, friends. It's me, Victoria Stapleton. I'm the director of school and library marketing at Little Brown Books for Young Readers. I am inside the tiny cave of literary fabulosity for the Little Brown School and Library podcast. Inside the tiny cave with me this episode are two very interesting and enjoyable people. Shannon Hale, who you may have heard of here and there and possibly everywhere, and even better, Dean Hale. Jazz hands and spirit fingers are all a wiggle because we're going to talk about story making and storytelling and how we build worlds and build characters and put a little voice in there, and it's going to be super awesome, fantastic. Are you ready, audience? Are you ready, Shannon and Dean? I am ready. Woohoo! Let's get started. You guys have worked in a variety of storytelling spaces and a variety of different age groups and formats, including things that are heavily, heavily visual. What I'm interested in today to kick off with is world building within the context of a so-called license project or what we call a media tie-in in the industry. We typically think of these things as heavily determined by a corporate behemoth who who has all the little details uh, written out in advance in some secret black binder of details and then you just fill in the blanks. But is that really the case or did you have a certain amount of freedom? How much freedom did you have to develop the world that you work with with Ever After High and now The Legend of Shadow High? It wasn't a black binder, right? No. It was gray. It was gray binder. Yeah. There was a the weird man they sent to your house. What was the first guy we had? Hank? Was that his name? I think so. I think so. The and hat he, was nice. He lives in the house with you and he stands over your shoulder and watches while you type. And if you write anything that is off-brand at all, then he squirts you in the face with a like a, a water gun. But um, it gave us a good idea for a scene in the book, the whole water squirting scene. So, you know, that's that. true. We did, we used it. You use, you know, someday this pain will be useful to you, and we used it. Um, they will it was a little it. alarming, but, you know, you make it work. No, obviously, it was, we uh, had tremendous freedom, way more freedom than I thought. I had prejudices against IP stories. I did. I thought intellectual property. Um, because we'd, we'd had, we have four children, and we've had a number of books that featured characters that they knew, whether from movies or toys and stuff, that they had, and we would read to them and always groan because they were so poorly written. And There's no author on the cover because, you know, there wasn't really an author. This was just something they kind of put together. Uh, so I, I kind of had that idea that all oh, these are things that are used just to sell product, and they're not really quality. But then when they came to me to write Ever After High, clearly they were seeking quality. Um, or why would they come this direction? Right, and right. so we were like, by golly, let's give it to them. And I was impressed with, um, for example, with Ever After High. I've written a number of books in different, Dean and I both have been with different IPs. And here's Mattel, and they've got this new line of toys, and they've got TV shows, and they've spend a lot of time developing their world and their characters and then they're going to turn it over to me to write a novel and I I was impressed with how hands-off they were they were just like we trust you and go for it and I got so few notes they gave me so much freedom to just write and create a story in their universe I had a, such a wonderful time with that first book Live Ever After High, which is the first IP I've ever written in. I've since done probably like eight in different IPs because it really was wonderful 
to work with them, to have the support of, of everything that came with that, and just really fun. You know, one way I think about it, too, is it's kind of like what, you know, with poetry, when you're writing a sonnet, for example, there's going to be certain course, rules yeah, you have to that's follow. One that's one way, you know, your morning sonnet, as you do, and... You have to follow those rules and stay in those parameters, but there's tremendous freedom within that to create art, and that's how it was with Ever After High. Was the first one your favorite one to write, The Legend you of Shadow that High? Or no, I mean, the, the storybook of legend. You say that because that's the only one that you didn't help me with. R right, right. I was leading to the, to the you know, difficulties of having to, uh, you know, work with a subcontractor. kind of a secret not really though that i wrote the first book by myself the storybook of legends and then the next three books dean actually participated behind the scenes um his name wasn't on the cover and and then so with this new book the legend of shadow high he came out of the shadows and now is is on the cover as well thank you for that there is a joke in here about pool boys <laughs> This is a family you know, I'm, podcast, I'm, I'm the, I'm so I'm going to leave that one. <laughs> it's, uh, I'm, I'm the heavyweight Hollywood producer, and he was my pool boy, and he right. worked up right. to a co-producer. <laughs> Look at you, you sweetie. You Look at you go. You reach for the stars, yeah. baby. That's right. I hook up with the right people. <laughs> this well, is getting inappropriate. We're, it's going to get very appropriate very quickly. Uh, listeners... <laughs> so I want to get into your work with gender stereotypes, etc. But first, let's talk about working with these characters that you've been given. Um, how were you able to to build your own vision into these specific personalities or persons? How did you give the persons personalities? I feel like I was lucky with Ever After High in that I was brought in so early in the process. They brought me in to write the first novel before the line had been announced. And although they've been developing the characters in the world for, you know, some time before that, I feel like I was able to influence in some way the character. And that's why they hire a writer like me or other writers that they bring in rather than just ghost writers are doing it in-house is because they're looking for that perspective. They're looking for what you have and what you offer. And an editor at Little Brown thought that I would be the right writer for this. And then they trusted me to bring my experience and what was important to me to these characters. And I had a lot of fun with them. So when I write Ever After High characters, I try to make them real girls. These are real girls who are very different. They're very diverse. They have different body types and different goals and different personalities and try to make the whole experience just as, as rich and fun as possible. And one great thing about it is I love when I travel around meeting little fans of the books and how there's so many different kinds of girls in these books that you can't ever anticipate which one is going to speak to each kid. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing to me how often I ask Who's your favorite character? And boy, there are, you know, 15 different to choose from, and each kid has a different one. Each one sees themselves in, in someone different. Well, you know, it's something that's, that's interesting with these uh, intellectual property with you know, characters that exist already from another company is when you're writing a story, oftentimes you want the characters to evolve. You want them to change. You, you know, there's usually conflict, and a story is about how they overcome that conflict and become, uh, you know, a new, better, or 
different person. And when you have characters like this that really can't change that much, you can do it, but it doesn't seem like, you know, we, we've written for other characters too. And to be able to fully explore who they are w without necessarily transforming the core of the character, without changing, like if they had been characters that we had invented or created, they might start out with one personality and then come to some realization and have a slightly different personality, but we can't really do that with existing characters. And, and actually, I find it real fun. I mean, it's a fun challenge, and it's a lot like, I don't know, I, I've always loved comic books, and it's a lot like when I would read a comic book story. There are so many stories about those heroes, but oftentimes they change, they change back. You know, you can't really modify the core of that character very much, and yet it's still super entertaining, and they still become true characters with good writers. So one of the things you guys are known for advocacy against gender stereotypes in reading. Uh, if I hear boy book or girl book one more time, just my hands crinkling up into claws. Um, but you've had a unique opportunity here within this in such a major brand that's theoretically pitched at girls. How does your work to subvert stereotypes in your books affect the effort to subvert stereotypes in the readers of those books? Yeah, Ever After High has been interesting because, like you say, like really all the characters are female, mm -hmm. and all of the faces on the front of the cover are female, and there is the temptation to say these books are for girls only. It's really important that everybody just change the way fundamentally we talk about books, and it's a very simple switch. Instead of saying this book is for boys, we say this book is about boys. Instead of saying this book is for girls, we say this book is about girls. That is true. This book is about girls. We don't get to decide who the book is for. Mm -hmm. But with Ever After High, it has people just constantly calling it books for girls. And one thing I've liked is when I travel around with Dean and we do school visits, for example, there he is, this man, and I always turn the part of the presentation that's Ever After High over to him. And he's the one that talks to him about Ever After High. And immediately just hearing it from the man's voice in that deep, sexy, <coughs> bass voice. Oh, thank um, you. Thank you, sweetie. <laughs> it changes immediately <laughs> someone's expectations about what is this story. Well, and I want to call him out, too, because, you know, so often when you do that presentation and you'll see, you'll announce, you'll show some of the things that you've written and you'll show ever after high and the girls will cheer and the boys will boo and i want to say guys what is the matter with you there there are some kick butt dragon fights in this book you don't read it you're missing out there's a whole bunch of cool stuff here and if you're judging it based on this that's dumb it's something that shocked me that boys felt so comfortable i'd show an image of ever after high and, and these boys would feel so comfortable booing it hearing him this speaker up in front of them and they're booing something that I wrote. And the teachers don't interfere. They let them because there's this concept that, well, boys will be boys. I used to just kind of let it go. And then I realized by not saying anything, I am saying something. I'm mm -hmm. saying this is okay. It's okay to allow boys to mock things that girls like. And that's not okay. And I need, for the girls' sake, if anything, I need to speak up. So I started calling the boys out on it and telling them it's completely inappropriate to boo. That's not okay. And I and then I talked to the girls about it's not okay for people to make fun of things you like. You're allowed to like what you like. Not everybody likes the same thing, but they have no right to mock what you like. Early in my career, my third book, I've, I've published.
published 25 books. My third book was Princess Academy. And it sounds so girly, that title. And most people don't know it's, if you wouldn't, if you don't read it, you don't know it's actually like a pretty hardcore feminist book. But anyway, it sounds girly and it won a Newbery Honor. And so, and it was a bestseller. And because of that, I, I have become labeled the author of Princess Academy. And because I've had carried that label with me my whole career, there's a certain way people treat me. There's certain assumptions they make about me, that I am a girly writer, that I am for girls alone. And so I've experienced so much just outright sexism in, in this industry from every side. And I've tried to catalog it and speak up about it a lot because I don't think everybody sees it quite so clearly and dramatically as I have because of the circumstance. One interesting um, experience that Dean and I have had this along these lines recently is we have a book series called The Princess in Black, and it is a book for young readers about a superhero who fights monsters. There's absolutely nothing in this book that any reader might not like. There's nothing to turn boys off if you think about boys as stereotypical kinds of readers, which they're not. But even if you do, you would think a monster fighting hero would be something a boy would be interested in. And we purposely wrote this book for a younger audience. It's uh, like, I would say fourth, four-year-old through seven-year-old mm -hmm. is like the primary audience, or maybe K through third grade. When kids are young enough that they haven't been taught, you can only like one kind of story. And yet parents and booksellers and teachers and librarians pre-select for them and decide if it's about a princess, it has to be for girls. They make fun of boys for wanting to read it. They tell them, no, you can't read that. That's for girls. I've seen it a thousand times and I've heard about it even more. And I don't think adults realize that they're even doing it mm -hmm. because as I keep calling it out, I have these adults contact me afterwards and said, I found myself doing that just the other day and I didn't even realize that's the kind of thing that I do. So I think it's important that we just, we talk about it. We realize that we're doing it, that we're artificially creating an environment where boys are taught to not empathize with girls and are taught to even hate anything to do with them. That's not natural. And one way I know that that's not natural is one experience I've had over and over again is at a signing, I mostly have girls and moms come to my signing. And quite often there will be at least one boy and he'll have a stack of my novels. He'll be a teenager and he doesn't look embarrassed to be there. As there, Often there are boys, but they're hiding around the back and the mom says, he likes your books too, but he's embarrassed to say, you know. But there's always one boy who's not embarrassed, doesn't know he's supposed to be embarrassed. And when I talk to him and try to figure out what's different about you, what I find out is that he is homeschooled. So there's something that happens in the school environment. And, I, you know, it's peers. It's everybody. It's not any one person. It's boys and girls doing it. It's everybody doing it. But there's a socialization that happens that teaches what it means to be a boy is to be the opposite of a girl and to hate what girls like. And that's really sad. It's sad for the boys. It's leaving them out of a lot of great stories. It's teaching them to live in a, in a way that's counter someone else it's an antagonistic way to live rather than mm -hmm. a unified way to live it's defining yourself by what you aren't instead of what you right. are well it's building an, an oppositional exactly. identity at a very right. early age i i think there's a, an interesting analogy here to thinking about children reading outside culture because often right. books for african americans or latino americans or asian americans or from other cultures are considered special or add-on or right. niche interest rather than regularly occurring 
can and we're, we're all going to read it. It's all part of our story, etc. cetera. Uh, I, I think there's an interest dis discussion to be had. You clearly have this commitment and you're very passionate about it and you're speaking out about it. Has this been affected in any way by your own children getting older and becoming more sophisticated in their reading habits? This really isn't about whether your kids are fans of your work, although they should because they're paying for trips to Bountiful for uh, what? what is the amusement park in Bountiful without the wild mouse wooden roller coaster that used to scare me as a child? Lagoon. Lagoon, yes. Oh, my Lord, I loved the wild mouse. As your kids get older and they're sophisticated, do you feel more of a pressure to get writing for that age group correct? By correct, I mean satisfying and complex. Yeah, you know, so my first book was published right before the birth of my first child. So I didn't have, I mean, I had nieces and nephews and stuff, but I didn't have that kind of really intimate relationship you have with children, your own children. And I remember... My first book was called The Goose Girl, and I remember a bookseller soon after it came out telling me they had sold it to a parent of a child who was going through a really hard time. The parents had gotten divorced, and the child was really having a hard time with it. And she read the book, and it meant something to her, so much so that she slept with that book every night, hugging it to her chest. I can barely, even now, 15 years later, talk about that without crying. It, it it was, I'll never forget that when I heard that, because it was the first time I realized, oh my word, what we do matters so much. And in a way that I, I didn't anticipate. I mean, I knew, I knew, I knew how important stories were to me when I was little, but as an adult and as a parent to realize how much a single story can mean to a child. Yes. It does make a difference and making sure we get it right, making sure that we, first of all, are honest with the kids, honest about how things feel. Don't dismiss what they're going through, what they're going through, even if it feels like, a, oh, you just wait, the adult might say, you just wait till you have real problems. It feels real to the kid. It is real. And to be a hand to hold as they go through that time, not by making everything you know, rosy cheeks and cherry picked, but to make a true story, but that also has hope. Yes, that's something I always think about. And I do think about representation a lot. Um, as I have been, I'm a, you know, a privileged straight white woman who has not experienced many things in this world. And I have been trying to learn better about the realities of the world and making sure that everything I put in my books represents reality um, in a truthful way. One small example of this is uh, Dean and I are writing these books for Marvel, which are another IP book. Uh, the character that we're writing is called Squirrel Girl, and it's comedy. It's fun. She's a comedic superhero with the powers of a squirrel. She's got a five-foot squirrel tail. It's tremendous fun, but that doesn't mean, even though it's a comedy, doesn't mean that you don't still take it seriously. And one of the point-of-view characters her best friend, Anna Sophia, is deaf. And we wanted to take that very seriously. I kept thinking about what if this book is a deaf child reads this book and it's the first time they've ever read a deaf character in a book and we get something wrong. Mm. I, I couldn't live with that. Yeah. So one thing we did do is we were able to get two beta readers who are deaf who kindly read the manuscript. We're 
actually just were doing a sequel and they just read the sequel as well and gave us feedback and found things that we never would have realized being hearing people. Yeah. We never yeah. would have noticed. And most hearing people would have thought wasn't that big of a deal. But you think about a deaf child reading that and would have been it would have been enormous to them that we had messed that up. So you you do want to even though my child isn't deaf Still knowing my child, knowing how important, for example, one of my child children's has, our children have, um, you know, certain challenges. And the first time our son read a book about somebody who had the same challenge that he did, it meant so much to him to be validated in that way. And I want to make sure that what I'm doing for any kid reader who reads our books is what I would want, um, the same care I'd want somebody to take who are writing books about my kids. I think that is a super awesome answer, and I will say that that is a perfect moment to end on as we are about to to lose the connection permanently and finally. <laughs> Our technology is about to kick us out of the, the teeny tiny literary cave of fabulosity. Uh, but thank you, Dean. It was cramped anyway. You know, well, it's a special closeness here. It is a special closeness. Uh, Dean and Shannon Hale, thank you so much for joining us for the Little Brown School and Library podcast. Their new book is the start of an all-new, fun, epic series, The Legend of Shadow High, shortly to be on shelves at libraries, bookstores, and bedside tables everywhere. We'll see you next time.